Welcome to Christian Life Issues for Today podcast. Today we're continuing our series on Your Family, God's Way. Out of my book, uh, Your Family, God's Way, which was published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company, or more commonly known as PNR Publishing Company. The subtitle of that particular book is Developing and Sustaining Relationships in the Home. Thus far, we've been looking at Psalm 128, which is called the Family Psalm. That particular psalm tells us about the husband and father in God's kind of home. And we had one podcast on that. Another uh, podcast that we got from that particular psalm was the excellent uh, wife and mother in God's kind of home. And that is also from Psalm 128. And then the third podcast we gave had to do with the issue of children or parenting. And uh, that was uh, what that psalm, Psalm 128, has to say about parenting. Now today, we turn uh, to a discussion of a very important part of family life, which is communication. And this is chapter four in the book, Your Family God's Way. It goes like this. Uh, Some time ago, I was a guest on a radio talk program. A caller asked me, what do you think is the biggest hindrance to marital and family unity today? Well, that's a difficult question. But I answered that one of the biggest hindrances to marital and family happiness is poor communication. As a counselor, I frequently encounter people who are experiencing poor communication in their family. They can't resolve their problems or develop deep relationships because they don't know how to communicate effectively. Without good communication, you can't have the kind of marriage or family God wants you to have. As Jay Adams points out in his book, Christian Living in the Home, when it comes to interpersonal relationships, communication comes first. It's a primary need. And for that reason, I want to devote several podcasts to a discussion of what constitutes effective communication and how your own communication with your family and with others outside of the home are involved. Question is, what is effective communication? Generally speaking, effective communication may be defined as process of sharing information with another person in such a way that the sender's message is understood as he intended it to be understood. Unless the sender and receiver have come to a common meaning, they haven't communicated effectively. In Ephesians chapter 4 in the Bible, Paul says that we are to speak what is good 
for edification according to the need of the moment, in order that we may minister grace or help to our hearers. You find that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. That powerful chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, indicates that when people have communicated effectively, they're mutually strengthened, they're edified, they're enriched, they're encouraged. That's the standard by which we must evaluate our marital and family communication. Does it foster harmony? Does it produce unity and emotional oneness? Does it draw people together? Do people in the family experience not just physical oneness, but emotional oneness and closeness? Is their own experience like that of David and Jonathan, whose souls were, the Bible says, knit together in an emotional bond of brotherly love? That's 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 11. A tremendously important in the marriage and family relationship is this issue of communication. In many families, people may hardly imagine the kind of harmony in which their hearts beat together and they experience a comprehensive kind of unity and deep intimacy. Well, in many families, they escape that deep intimacy because they're not communicating effectively. Wherever you find people fulfilling the one flesh concept, which is God's concept of marriage as described in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, you will find people who communicate effectively. That is because the one flesh closeness and relationship is more than physical union. It implies emotional closeness, harmony, and intimacy, which are the inevitable outgrowth of effective communication. Now, a title in, of one of the chapters in my book is I Heard What You Didn't Say. And I've entitled that chapter, I Heard What You Didn't Say, to call attention to a much overlooked aspect of communication. The, what we could call the nonverbal element or what some have called the silent communication. You're communicating even though you're not specifically saying words. Now this nonverbal silent communication is a much overlooked aspect of communication. The nonverbal element is important to recognize that communication is more than words. It also involves accurately sending and receiving the right kind of nonverbal messages or silent communication. 
And we have many examples of nonverbal communication in the Bible. At the time of their creation, we're told that Adam and Eve were both naked and they were both ashamed. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now that said something about their relationship with each other and with God. They had no shame or embarrassment. It says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Because there was no guilt, there was no shame. Their consciences were clear. Because their hearts were pure and holy, they felt comfortable with each other and even with God. Later, in Genesis chapter 3, when they had disobeyed God's command by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 and Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, their nonverbal behavior expressed clearly that something had changed. They tried to cover up That's Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. And when God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, they did something that they had never done before. The Bible says they hid. Without saying a word, Adam and Eve declared that something was seriously wrong. They didn't have to explain. You know, we ate of the forbidden fruit. And now we're ashamed. Their actions said it all. Another example of the power of nonverbal communication is found in a later chapter of Genesis. Scripture tells us that the sons of Jacob knew that Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of the sons. Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 and 4, explicitly states it that Jacob treated Joseph differently than he did the other sons. Joseph's brothers knew that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, not from what he said, but from what they saw. You read of that in Genesis 37 and verse 4. I doubt that Jacob went around saying, you know, Joseph is my favorite son. I love him much more than the rest of you. But the fact was that he did love Joseph more than all of the other children. And his nonverbal behavior conveyed that message forcefully. Jacob's sons heard what he didn't say. And the same thing happens today. Others may hear what we're not saying, because we're constantly sending messages without even opening our mouths. The truth is that we are never not communicating, even when we're silent. There are a lot of common forms of silent communication. We communicate with our eyes by the way we look or don't look at each other. If I avoid eye contact with you, I am communicating. If I roll my eyes when you're talking to me, 
you get a particular message. We communicate with our facial expressions, whether it be a a stern look or a pleasant look. My frowns, my smiles, my smirks, my pouts, my worried or angry look, my fearful facial expressions convey messages to other people. We also communicate by the way we dress. Our clothing is either sloppy or neat. It communicates whether we're organized or whether we care about our clothing, what we wear. We often indicate what we think about others by the way we dress around them. When husbands or wives refuse to wear what their spouses want them to wear, a message is being sent. A person doesn't have to say, I don't like you, or I don't care what you think, to convey that message in a nonverbal way. We may communicate by the way we sit or stand. If when you walk up to some people, they back off, they may be telling you that you're invading their private space or that you have bad breath or that you're reeking with a certain offensive kind of body odor. You see, when they back off when we walk up, they're telling us that we're invading their private space. Perhaps they don't know you and don't trust you sufficiently to allow you to get close to them. They are announcing that you can't crash your way into their lives. If someone turns his back on you, the message may even be stronger than just being silent. They'll tell you that you can't crash your way into their lives. The message is very strong. If someone comes into my counseling office, some of them pull their chairs up as close to the desk as they can get. Others push their chairs away. When some families come in, the wife always sits to the right and the husband to the left. Their child inevitably takes the middle chair. Positioning himself or herself as close to the mother and as far away from the father as possible. They're telling you something about their family relationship. If one sits on the other side of the room, the child opts for the other side of the room and another chair. An astute observer will glean from these arrangements much information about family coalitions and interactions. 
For example, the first child may have aligned himself more closely with mom, considering her to be his ally and protector. The second child may consider himself as an outsider, not especially close to either mom or dad. People often communicate by their use of time. Show me how you use your time and I'll show you something about your value. If you tell me that your relationship with God is the most important factor in your life and yet you don't have time for church or prayer or Bible reading, Your actions speak more loudly than your words. If you say your family is important to you, but you don't have time to be with them, you may be saying that it's important to you, but you don't have to spend the time with them. It's telling me that they're not important to you. You don't have to have a word, you telling by your actions what's really going on. I'll know your family is not important enough to you if you don't have time for them. If you spend your money on all kinds of things, but you don't give to the Lord's work or to needy people or even to your family, you're telling us something about what's important in your life. You're telling us something about where your treasure is and what your values are. Jesus indicates that the way we use our money is a trustworthy barometer of our character and our reliability. In fact, the Bible indicates that if a person is faithful to God, in the stewardship of his material possessions, which the Bible indicates is a little thing, he can be trusted to be faithful in other areas. If he can't be trusted with money, the Bible indicates he can't be trusted in other areas as well. If a person can't be trusted in the economic realm, He can't be trusted in any other realm either. That's Luke chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. The way we laugh and what we laugh at say much about our attitudes and values. We communicate our willingness to help others and by the spirit or manner in which we do the helping. Without Speaking a word, people get the message either that we're glad to give assistance or that we're doing it grudgingly because we don't know how to get out of it. We do it, but it's not because we really want to. They don't have to say a word about that. They can tell by the way that they help. We communicate with our ears by whether we're willing to listen to people. As I look out over a congregation when I'm preaching or classes when I'm teaching, I sometimes see 
people leaning forward, literally doing what the book of Proverbs says. They're inclining their ears to hear what's being said. The nonverbal behavior of other people suggests that they're inclining their ears not by inclining their ears. They're communicating without saying a word. These people express their different levels of interest by the way they sit and by the way they listen. We communicate with our arms and our hands. When I put my arms around my wife, I'm sending a message to her. Even our absence or presence indicates whether we're willing or unwilling to spend time with someone. It could be argued that we do more communicating non-verbally than verbally. And since communication involves everything we do as well as what we say, we're communicating all the time. Even our attempts to avoid communication is a way of sending a message. The question is not will we or won't we communicate, but are we communicating effectively? That question can't be answered affirmatively unless we're sending and receiving the right kind of nonverbal messages, practicing good, silent communication. Nonverbal messages are powerful. God's nonverbal communication to us through what Jesus Christ did in going to the cross, giving up his life, being willing to be punished for our sins is the most powerful communication you could imagine. How could God say I love you more powerfully than he did through the giving of his own son for us on the cross? God, the Bible says, commends or proves his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the death of Christ on the cross is a powerful way for God to communicate how much he loves us. Indeed, after reminding us that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, Paul goes on to ask, how will he not also with him, that is with Christ, freely give us all things? God has unmistakably and irrefutably asserted his infinite love for us through the powerful nonverbal message of the cross. If he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, the Bible says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. In the midst of a powerful message on church unity, Paul says to the Ephesians, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. That's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Why does Paul bring 
up stealing in a passage about interpersonal relationships with people. Well, the point is, if we say that we really care for people and yet we steal from them, our actions contradict our words. Stealing from people and loving them just do not go together. If you really want to get along with people, Paul explains, you must stop stealing and start working and giving. In other words, demonstrate your concern for other people by ministering to them in practical ways. Stop thinking only about yourself and what others can do for you. Practice thinking and acting like their needs are important to you. Such actions speak volumes of your love for other people. So, we must never underestimate the significance of our nonverbal behavior. Nothing is more significant in our relationships with other people. In a very real sense, we can create our own environments by influencing how others respond to us. We create our own environments by what we do to other people by our positive actions or our negative actions. Recently, a young man went and gotten into some serious trouble was sharing with me some things that bothered him. In particular, he didn't like the way his mother treated him. She's constantly telling me, be home at a certain time. She's afraid I'll be kidnapped, telling me to get home by a certain time. She's afraid that someone is going to hurt me. Now, this young man didn't like the way his mother was treating him. She's constantly telling me to be home at a certain time. She's afraid. And so she's telling me to be home at a certain time because she's afraid I'll be kidnapped, someone who will steal me. She always wants to know where I'm going, what I do, who I'm with, when I'll be back. Here I am, 16 years of age, and she's treating me like a little baby, constantly checking up on me. I asked him, do you have any idea why your mom does this? And would you like some help in getting out your mom off of your back? Stopping checking up on you so much? I said, you need some help in getting your mom off your back? He responded, well, I don't know why she does this. And yes, I'd like help in getting her to treat me more like an adult. You think there's any possibility that you taught your mother to treat you in this way, I asked. With a puzzled expression, he replied, what do you mean? I answered, let me illustrate with an example. 
Some time ago, one of our sons worked at a takeout seafood restaurant. Before long, the owner developed a high regard for my son, whose nickname is Chip, a chip off the old block, and made him assistant manager. Chip's boss had such confidence in him that he would often put him in charge of the restaurant and not even come into the restaurant. The owner frequently told us how much he appreciated Chip and how he wished he could find other workers just like him. Recently, we saw this man again. Our son had not worked for him for more than two years. But he lamented the fact that he still had not found anyone to replace Chip. The owner said people like him are hard to find. At that point, I said to the young man I was counseling, do you know why this restaurant owner had such a high opinion of our son and wanted other employees like him? Well, this young man said, I guess he trusted him. How do you think he came to believe that he could trust my son in that way? Well, I guess he saw what your son was doing and figured that he was trustworthy. And how did he get that idea that he was trustworthy? Who taught him to view Chip that way? Well, I guess Chip did. So what you're saying is that my son helped to create his own environment. Because of his reliability, he taught this man that he could be trusted. Now suppose Chip had always come in 15 minutes late or cheated on his time card or loafed on the job. Suppose he had refused to follow the boss's instructions or sneaked a free meal to one of his friends. What do you think the boss would have done then? Well, he probably would have fired him or at least would have watched him more. I guess he'd push him a little harder and wonder if he could be trusted. He wouldn't ask him to manage the restaurant when he was away. Right. My son would have taught him that he couldn't be trusted. Again, my son would have created his own environment by influencing the way that this man acted toward him. Now, how might all this apply to what's happening with your mother? What does this suggest about how you can get your mother to treat you in a less observant way? What do you think might help your mother to trust you more? He answered, well, I guess if I want her to treat me like an adult, I have to act more like an adult. I have to be more open with her and teach her I can be trusted. From there, we went on to discuss how he 
would teach his mother to trust him differently and treat him as more of an adult. We reflected on what he was doing to reinforce her tendency to treat him like a child. We considered what he could do to communicate to his mother that he was trustworthy. We explored the biblical concept that we often reap what we sow, that we reap more than we sowed, and we decided on how and what he could do differently to get his mother to the point where she could trust him and not have to be so frequently asking him where he is and telling him that he should be home by a certain time. The lesson here is that our actions tend to create reactions in our environment, including the home. And our reactions to others encourage certain responses on their part to our actions, whether they're good or bad. Before we complain about the behavior of other family members, we need to consider how we're provoking them or responding to them. The scriptural admonition not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather to give them a blessing as described in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 comes into play at this point. We need to recognize the domino or what we could call the boomerang effect of much behavior. Our behavior may actually trigger or reinforce in others the kinds of behavior we oppose, whether grumpiness, distrust, condemnation, or strife. Sadly, our nonverbal communication is often misunderstood by other people. When God is sending the message through creation, God is constantly declaring his glory. The Bible says the heavens are are present tense declaring the glory of God. They're always declaring God's glory. But how many people don't see the glory of God in creation? People either ignore the message about God proclaimed through God's world or else they see in creation what they consider to be evidences of evolution. They completely misunderstand the message God is sending. People often misinterpret God's revelation, which is clearly displayed in providence. Scripture teaches that history is his story, but very few People acknowledge God's hand in the affairs of men. Even Christians sometimes misunderstand God's nonverbal behavior. 
Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 tell us that God's chastening or discipline is an evidence of his love for us. It proves that he is our father and we're members of his family. But there are many times that we don't see it that way. That's why the Bible says don't faint or become weary when you're chastened by him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. We don't always recognize that what happens to us is a reflection of God's love for us. In like fashion, the nonverbal behavior of men is often misconstrued by others. Do you remember the Old Testament case in which Eli misinterpreted Hannah's behavior when he came into the temple and saw her there? That's described in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The Bible tells us that Hannah was distressed because she wanted a child and she wasn't getting a child. And as she earnestly prayed to God in deep and sincere faith, Eli observed that her lips were moving, though she made no sound. Thinking that Hannah was drunk, he sternly rebuked her for her intemperance. Eli had completely misinterpreted her nonverbal behavior. The New Testament describes a similar event in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God powerfully came upon the Christians in Jerusalem, they took to the streets, speaking in other languages, the languages of the various people who were there from different countries. They witnessed in the language of the people from other countries. And they preached to them about Jesus in their own language. Some people noticed the way these Christians were behaving and concluded that they were drunk. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. The action of these Christians were grossly misunderstood. And if it happened then, it can happen today. People will be prone to misconstrue our nonverbal behavior sometimes. While assuming that they hear what we're not saying, they may draw the wrong conclusions. And that will influence the way they think, act, and feel about us, inaccurate or not. 